Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You are listening to Dakota Spotlight Podcast, a production of Forum Communications. This episode contains profanity and other content that some may find disturbing. Discretion is advised. Five nineteen sixteenth Street. I just got home. My back door is kicked in, and my girl ain't answering the phone. Five nineteen sixteenth Street. Right across from uh, Longfellow Elementary. Okay, what's your name? My name's Christopher Jackson. My son's inside with her and everything. I'm about to go in and see what the fuck is going on. Okay, why don't you just wait for officers? I'll get them over there. All right, thank you. If there's if there's anything that can happen through documentaries like this, through books like this, is perhaps we can find ways to, to prevent things like that. Angela was scared. Angela thought someone was stalking her. Angela thought someone was following her. Yeah, we fucking had this planned out. And he fucked it up. I mean, how did he... Because he didn't clean the car good enough. One fucking spot of blood in my car. Hey there, and welcome to Dakota Spotlight Podcast and this one episode story. Most of you know that I just finished Season 3 of The House on Sweet and 7th, a six-part podcast series available for free now pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks to all of you who are listening. This episode is not part of a season, but rather an intriguing interview with a true crime fan from North Dakota who decided to become a true crime author. C.J. Wynn just published her first book in August of 2020, a book titled Wilder Intentions about the horrific murder of Angela Wilder in 2015 in Minot, North Dakota. I interviewed the author earlier this summer. She's going to tell us a little bit about why she wrote the book, how she went about it, and most importantly, she's going to tell us the story of Angela Wilder and her tragic murder. We will also briefly discuss something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, namely the role of drugs and alcohol in crime. Because it seems to me that whenever I attempt to understand the why about some of these bizarre stories, the perpetrators refer me to drugs and alcohol. Are drugs and alcohol a warranted explanation for violent crime? We'll talk briefly about that, too. So, let's meet C.J. Wynn. Due to the COVID pandemic, I interviewed her outdoors at a state park in North Dakota. The audio is mostly very good, but you may hear a boat in the background for a second, and you might hear an occasional very slight gust of wind. Here she is. So I'm uh, CJ Wynn. I'm originally from North Dakota. I was uh, born in St. Paul, Minnesota, and then moved to Minot uh, when I was three. Um, and I graduated from Minot High School and then went in 94, and then I went on to graduate from the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks with a degree in psychology. And then I also have a master's degree in organizational psychology. Now, uh, the, the book is titled Wilder Intentions. Um, it's being published by Black Lion Publishing, and it will be available on paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. So the, the book is about the 2015 murder of Angela Wilder, uh, which happened in Minot, North Dakota, November of 2015. 
it was eventually found out that she was stabbed to death in her bed while she slept while her two-year-old toddler was just down the hall from her, also asleep in his bed. Um, it was found out that her ex-husband, Richie Wilder Jr., stabbed her to death while she slept in her room. C.J. Wynn lives in Arizona today, but because she's from Minot, North Dakota, when she heard that the television program Dateline NBC was going to be covering the Angela Wilder murder, she became intrigued. I recorded it and sat down and watched it. And for whatever reason, the minute I watched it, I knew that there had to be so much more information than what was shared in that hour-long episode. And just given kind of my background in researching true crime, I just thought, this is it. I'm ready to do this. And I, I knew this was the book I had to do because it was so close to home. I asked the author to tell us briefly about the victim, Angela Wilder, and the crime itself. Uh, she was 30 years old. She was the mother of three. Um, it was later kind of determined that she actually was pregnant again, um, just in the very, very early stages. But she was pregnant when she was killed. Uh, she was murdered in her home in the middle of the night on November 13th, Friday, November 13th. Investigators originally suspected Angela's fiancé and live-in boyfriend, Christopher Jackson, the man who arrived home from his job at Walmart, where he worked the night shift. Um, he had been trying to reach her. She was supposed to pick him up at Walmart that morning from work. She never showed up. He did not. She was not answering any of his calls, any of his text messages. So he ended up having to take a taxi home. Um, and when he got home, he saw that the door, the back door to their house was ajar. Um, and he walked a little bit closer and found that it was damaged. Um, so he surmised that it had been, had been kicked in. And his fiance, Angela Wilder, and their two-year-old son uh, were inside the house. And he did not go in the house. He called 911. And it was later kind of speculated about why he didn't go in the house. Um, he later said that he regretted not going in there, but he had called 911 and, um, and they did find that she was behind the bedroom. The door to their bedroom was locked. Uh, the, the police did have to kick it down and they found her body on the floor in a pool of her blood. You know, investigators initially did think that Christopher Jackson might have had something to do with it and they brought him down for questioning right away. But just listening to the pain and the agony in Christopher's voice was, I think enough for them to realize that there was, there's no way he could have had something to do with it. But her family did not live in North Dakota. Her family lived in what kind of dispersed. Her father lived in Alabama. Her mo mother lived in Florida and her sister lived in Texas. And they all got word of it pretty quickly through Christopher and began calling the detectives. And all of them pretty much said the same thing is that there's no way Christopher would have had anything to do with it, that it had to be her ex-husband, Richie Wilder Jr. Richie Wilder Jr. was Angela's first husband. The couple had met in Alabama and moved to North Dakota when Richie Wilder joined the military and was stationed at the Air Force Base in Minot. They had two children together, but in 2012, they divorced and settled on an amicable child custody arrangement. Within a year, both Angela and her ex-husband Richie moved on to new relationships. Angela became engaged with Christopher Jackson, the man we just heard about who came home from his job at Walmart and found the door kicked in. Angela's ex-husband, Richie, was in a new relationship, too. He had married a petite kindergarten teacher named Cynthia Fladeland. And so, you know, they called in Richie later that day, and his interview, juxtaposed against Christopher's interview, was like night and day. And it was pretty clear that Richie was hiding something. Within just a few weeks, Angela's ex-husband, Richie Wilder, was arrested for Angela's murder. Police had evidence that he had snuck into her home in the middle of the night and killed her while her two-year-old was down the hall and her boyfriend, Christopher, was at work at Walmart. 
they had DNA evidence. Um, they had just a mountain of evidence against Richie, and he was arrested just five weeks later. So you might be thinking that although this is a very tragic story, it's also a rather straightforward story, wasn't it? A man killed his ex-wife in cold blood. End of story. Right? Not even close. Not even close. It should have been end of story once Richie was arrested. The DNA evidence pointed towards him. Um, detectives really didn't know if he'd done it himself, but there was no evidence pointing towards anything else. Of course, they suspected that his wife, Cynthia, may have been involved somehow, but there was just... Uh, Richie did not divulge any kind of that information. Cynthia maintained her story that she'd been home all night. In fact, Richie Wilder claimed that he was innocent of the crime. And Richie refused to talk to detectives once he was arrested. Until he was ready to talk. And when he started talking, he never stopped. Um, to his detriment. We both were kind of waiting like where the lobby slash the front of the school is right there. The entrance to Longfellow. Despite the evidence against him, Richie came up with some crazy stories. One story that he made up was that it was actually Christopher Jackson, Angela's new boyfriend and fiancé, who had killed her. Richie claimed that Angela's fiancé had contacted him and said that he thought that Angela was cheating on him while he was at work at Walmart. Richie claimed that he asked Richie to come and pick him up at Walmart one night, and then together they would catch Angela in bed with another man. That way they could testify in court together and prove that Angela was an unfit mother, and then both men would get full custody of their own children. Richie Wilder attempted to feed this tall tale to investigators one day. He claimed that he picked up Angela's fiancé on a street corner near Walmart. But right in that entrance right there, he was on that corner, by the corner of 37th and the entrance right there. So by that driveway then? Yes, sir. Was he there when you pulled up? Yes, sir. Richie then claimed they drove to Angela's house, entered the house, went to the bedroom to catch Angela in bed with a lover. When he opened the door, that was like their bedroom. There's a bed and a dresser and stuff in there. So he opened the door? He opened the door. Okay. Where were you at at this time? I was still behind him, and as he was going in the room, I just stood at their bedroom door. And then, Richie claimed, Angela's fiancé went berserk and killed Angela, stabbing her. So, of course, she went to fight back, and like he drove her off the bed and kept just stabbing her. And, uh, sorry, um, he just kept stabbing her. And you, I was like, what the fuck are you doing, man? And I ran over there. I ran over there, and I touched, I touched her neck to feel her pulse, you know, because she was kind of like, you know, like, you're going, and there was just blood everywhere. Richie was a pretty good actor, maybe, but what he didn't know was that the police had already looked very closely at Angela's fiancé. They had also looked very closely at surveillance video from Walmart. They had studied it backwards and forwards, and they could prove that Angela's fiancé never left Walmart the night Angela was killed. Here is a detective explaining that very thing to Richie Wilder. Chris did not leave Walmart during those times. I know he did, and I picked him up. I know he didn't because I watched him on video. I watched the minutes click by. I don't know if you did this on your own or if there was somebody with you, but it wasn't Chris. No, they didn't know if Richie did this on his own or not, but they knew that he did it. He was convicted of murder and went to prison for life. But then one day, the Minot Police Department got a very interesting phone call. 
Apparently, after her husband was arrested for murder, Cynthia got a little bit lonely. And began reaching out to some of her um, former flames. And one of them um, had actually done a little bit of time in jail himself uh, for some things that he had done several years earlier. And for and I, and I think that she felt comfortable in talking to him because he had some experience with that. And she ended up divulging some information that he became very concerned with. And so he eventually reached out to the Minot Police Department and he eventually became um, confidential informant for the Minot Police Department. And and he agreed to wear a wire and take Cynthia out on the town on a type of date or whatever it was and to attempt to get her to admit to any involvement she may have had in the murder. And so that's what happened. The informant and Cynthia Wilder went out on the town in Minot while just down the street, the Minot police listened in. First, the informant picked up Cynthia Wilder with his vehicle and engaged her in chit-chat on the way to a bar. It really is hot as fuck up in Colorado, too. Colorado South. Uh, yeah, but it's high in elevation, so it's up. Sure. Yeah. Where are we going? Um, I was thinking the duck. Then they parked and went into the bar where they spent a few hours socializing and drinking. Oh. Yes, I am thirsty. What uh, What do you have on tap? Then they left the bar. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know, man. Like, what are we doing after the bar afterwards? Afterwards, they went to get some fast food. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, could I get a, uh, could I get a grilled chicken burrito? I need a drink. Drink, drink, drink. This water would be wonderful. Um, two waters. And then they parked to eat in the car and to talk first about child custody issues and things like that. She was up here for the trial, and then we had court a few months later, and she told the judge that I wouldn't let her see the kids. I'm like, I have pictures of you with the fucking kids. Like, I don't... And then they talked about a different topic, the murder of Angela Wilder. I don't know. I, I'm just mad all the time, and I don't know why. About what? Like, I don't know. Who? That's the problem. Like, I don't know. Are you mad at your husband? No. Like, I'm, I'm proud of him. I'm just pissed that he got caught and that he got... Sloppy and impatient, and we like had this thing like planned for like two fucking years, and we're just waiting on fucking. Seriously? Yeah, seriously. And eventually, Cynthia's kind of brick wall that she had put up uh, to investigators and anyone else who asked the questions of her began to crumble. Like Jesus. I helped him. Like I would leave. Like when he worked nights, I would leave the house at like midnight and like sit outside her house in my vehicle seeing who came into the house when her boyfriend left where when yeah we fucking had this planned out and he fucked it up i mean how did he like because he didn't clean the car good enough one fucking spot of blood in my car how the fuck do you even clean blood i thought they put luminol on it i've seen a lot of crime shows i thought if they put luminol on it like it shows up they did the luminol okay so they took my car the first time November 13th and they they just searched it, it was in the school parking lot and and all they found was like a spot of blood on the passenger door 
I don't even fucking know how there was blood on the passenger door. Like, I don't know how the how blood got on the Did passenger. Did get in the passenger door? I don't know. I don't fucking know. Like. When Angela had been scared and thinking that someone was stalking her, someone was watching her, she, as it turns out, she was right. She was right. They, that, that she had been being watched in, in her home to find out when she was going to be alone by Cynthia Wilder. He came home that night and he said, it got sloppy. She fought back. He had to do what he had to do. I helped him clean up. He left again to like dispose of the clothing and the, and the weapon and everything. And I thought we were like in the clear. And then Cynthia Wilder was arrested, charged, convicted, and went to prison for life. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. In a moment, the author C.J. Wynn will tell us how she got interested in true crime, how she went about writing her book, and then she'll tell us about when she went to visit Cynthia Wilder in prison, the woman who helped her husband murder his ex-wife. I'm looking for some secret stories, and maybe you can help. We've all heard plenty of crime-related stories with an unsolved component. Usually that unsolved thing is who did it. Sometimes it's who is this victim, so-called John Doe's or Jane Doe's. What I'm looking for, though, are stories where the unanswered riddle is something else. For example, that riddle might be, did a crime even take place at all? Confused? Let me give you an example. In a future episode, you'll be meeting my friend Peter in Sweden, who still to this day occasionally loses sleep over something that happened over three decades ago when he was a young man traveling in Alaska. One late night, he parted ways with a young woman he'd just met, a girl who had shared a type of secret with him. I won't spoil the story for you now, but when you listen later, you'll see that the girl said she was in a type of danger. The girl promised to meet my friend Peter again the next morning. The next day, he waited for her. He waited for her all day. She never showed up, and he never saw her again. Now, all these years later, Peter and I want to find out what happened to her, if anything at all. What about you? Is there something itching in the back of your mind or conscience? Is there an answer you've always been looking for but never seemed to find? Do you know of a crime that never came to light? Maybe you're the only person who knows. And it doesn't have to be crime-related. Maybe you're like my friend Peter, and you just need to solve your own personal mystery so you can sleep a little easier at night. Send me your idea. You can do so anonymously at dakotaspotlight.com slash contact, or send me an email at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. C.J. Wynn became interested in true crime at a young age. For her, it started back in the 80s when she spent a lot of evenings watching true crime TV shows with her mother. She even remembers the first one she ever watched. 
the first one was called The Burning Bed. Uh, it was Farrah Fawcett was in it, and it was about an abused woman who ended up killing her husband by burning him in their bed. And so ever since then, we would just watch every single um, true crime episode that there was and American Justice with Bill Curtis on A&E, every dateline, every four to eight hours. Uh, you know, the summer before my freshman year of college, we sat and watched the O.J. Simpson trial on end for hours together. Wilder Intentions is C.J. Wynn's first book. I've always been interested in writing. I've always loved writing. I always loved writing college papers and things like that, but I have never written anything true crime prior to this. However, I've read well over a hundred true crime books and kind of familiarized myself with the authors that I really like, the style that I really like. And so I naively perhaps thought, well, you know, I'm somewhat of an expert (laughs) given that, given that I've read all these things and I've watched all these things. And so I just, you know, I reached out to I actually reached out to one of my favorite true crime authors, uh, Shanna Hogan, um, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, she wrote the book about the Jody Arias case, which happened in um, Arizona. Shanna also lives in Arizona. And, you know, I really didn't anticipate that she would respond back to me, but I just asked her for some initial guidance and feedback on how to get started in doing this. And it, to my surprise and, and, and really delight, actually, she responded back and it sounded as though we had a, quite a bit in common. So we met for coffee and she's kind of been my mentor every step of the way. I asked the author how she first set out to start working on this book. So one of the first things I did is I reached out to the Minot Police Department is I wanted to know how much was going to be available in terms of public records, um, any interviews, things like that. Um, and, and, and thankfully, actually, through the Dateline show, they had already prepared a lot of that information. So it was kind of already set to go. Her next step was to ask the Minot Police Department if any of the officers and detectives who worked on this case would agree to an interview. Ultimately, she was given access to four different officers. Dave Goodman, um, um, Sergeant Jessica Sundheim, Senior Officer Carmen Asham, and then Officer Matt Pappenfuss. Um, All of them were just awesome. We sat down and had kind of a round table for a couple hours. Another thing she did was reach out to Cynthia Wilder in prison, the woman who had helped her husband kill his ex-wife, Angela Wilder. And so I began emailing her in October of 2018, just a couple months after I'd seen that dateline. And then I maintained a um, an email communication with her for about six to seven months before I actually traveled back to North Dakota, um, to New England, North Dakota, where she is in at the North Dakota Correctional Unit for Women. Um, and visited with her last in June of 2019, so a year ago. The prison in in New England is actually an old Catholic school, and so it was converted to a women's prison in the late 90s. And it's just this little waiting room with security cameras and and windows and things, a couple of chairs, and then a little hallway off to the side. They led me down this little hallway to a door and opened it up, and there there she was. You know, I'm I'm kind of a tall girl. Um, I'm about I'm about five nine, and she is barely five foot tall. The things that you see of her, and especially when you read in the book, you will you will probably come up with the conclusion that there's that there's an emotional aspect missing to her personality in terms of having empathy. She told uh, the confidential informant that she does not, in general, care about other people. Um, she kind of laments to herself that she. Although she's a mother and a kindergarten teacher, she really doesn't care about others, which is which is kind of surprising. Uh, but 
but it does fit with a lot of what I uncovered in my research and, and things that she eventually shared with me. And then, and then meeting her in person, it seemed to me that she was in general a, a fairly bubbly person, you know, talking about her family and things like that. She's, she's really quite bubbly. She was very open. Um, it's kind of when we started to talk a little bit about the murder itself that she sort of clammed up. I asked C.J. Wynn what she was attempting to achieve by writing this book. What was she looking for? As it turns out, I had no trouble understanding her answer because it's something I can relate to very well. She wants to understand why these things happen. And I, and I think every time that I dive into it, I do understand. Whether it's right or not, it at least helps me, helps my mind rest to trying to understand um, and, and, and if there's if there's anything that can happen through documentaries like this, through books like this, is perhaps we can find ways to possibly prevent things like that. Angela was scared. Angela thought someone was stalking her. Angela thought someone was following her. But she didn't do, she really didn't do anything. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying that she's at fault in any way, shape or form. But she didn't do anything to take steps of potentially protecting herself in terms of being more vocal about it and saying, I think this is happening to me. A lot of times the signs are all there. They're all there. All the red flags are there. In this particular case, aside from the fact that Angela felt that someone was following her, that someone was watching her, there really weren't any glaring red flags that would have precipitated any kind of action like this by Richie Wilder against Angela. And to a certain extent, the more readers look at this book and understand who Richie was as a person, you may find that there simply was no way to stop something like this, that this is some, this is what he was going to do because that's what the, that, that's the character and behavior that he was, he, he was leading towards for a long time. Cynthia wasn't even 30 years old when this happened. You know, Richie, Richie was, was just a few years older. They are now sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole, barring any kind of miracle for either of them they're never leaving jail. This is their life now. And you have to ask, do you sit behind these barbed wire fences and, and lock doors and feel like a vice is, is closing in on you because you can't leave. There's nothing you can do. That's it. And so at 30 years old, life in, life in prison without the chance of parole, does that mean 60 years? I asked CJ Wynn what people can expect from reading her book. I, I know that people have probably seen the dateline. Um, and what I would, what I would say is that there's, there's really so much more information and Dateline always does a great job, um, in, in presenting essentially the overall, the overall story. Wilder Intentions really takes a deeper look into the backgrounds of everyone involved. Uh, Angela Wilder, Richie Wilder Jr., Cynthia Wilder. While Dateline really showed essentially, here's what happened, here's who was, here, here's who was responsible and here's, here was the ultimate outcome of that. This book really takes into account things that things that people have not yet heard, things that transpired behind bars while Richie awaited trial, things that happened while Cynthia waited while Cynthia was waiting for her husband to go on trial, things that she th- things that she did, actions that she took. Um, you know, you can read things on a document, you can read things on a transcript, you can you can see things on a video, but you have to be able to put context behind that so a reader finds meaning and finds it finds it finds it rich and, and I can actually engage in it. So what I try to do as a writer is try to make people feel like they're actually in the room with these people when this is ha- when 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 things like this are happening that they can put themselves in the position of the detective and tr- and and understand why the detect- detectives are answering the questions that they are. That they can 
they can vision, they can visualize the mannerisms and the tone of voice, um, you know, of Richie Wilder, Jr., of Christopher Jackson, um, things like that. So I hope that when people read this book, they feel that I've given them an opportunity to almost put themselves as though they are in the actual situation. They're almost living it out as they're reading the words on the pages. I asked CJ Wynn why she had written this book. My intent with writing this book is that someone died in the most tragic, horrific manner possible. And her name should never be forgotten. Her, the things that she brought to people's lives, she was a loving mother. She was a loving sister, a loving daughter. She loved her fiance. She was in nursing school. All she ever wanted to do was care for others and be a mother. And she was taken from this earth tragically and horrifically, and it never should have happened. And I hope that her memory is never lost. Finally, I asked C.J. Wynn to give her opinion on something I've been thinking about a lot lately. In all three seasons of my podcast, Dakota Spotlight, drugs and alcohol have one way or another been offered as the reason for why these crimes take place. In season one, Victor Newberry was found dead next to his running pickup on an early December morning. I won't spoil the story for those of you who have not listened to it. In Season 2, Zealand, the untold story of Wade and Ellen Zick, I was told by one of the three convicted killers that alcohol and drugs was the explanation. And in Season 3, The House on Sweet and Seventh, the behavior of the perpetrators and their supporters was again, by some, chalked up to drugs and alcohol. I told C.J. Wynn that personally I feel very unsatisfied with this explanation somehow, and I wanted to get the author's thoughts on this topic. So... You have a lot of people that are addicted to drugs and alcohol that don't do things like that, right? That that don't commit murders, that don't look at murders and do nothing about it. So what's the difference? So can you use drugs and alcohol as the crux to, well, that's why this happened when there's people that are on drugs and alcohol that don't do things like that. And so I feel like it's got to be a combination of things. So the drugs and alcohol, is that something people who are addicted to the drugs and alcohol who who are uh, participating in things like that is there more to it are they using drugs and alcohol to get past a troubled childhood but then again you have people who have troubled childhoods who don't do things like that it is hard it is hard and i understand i understand completely how you feel is that 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 isn't good enough for me that 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 excuse isn't good enough for me for why this happened because because then doesn't it come down to more of an argument about morals? I mean, I I still go back to a lot of times personal choice. If your moral moral compass is broken, you know that you know it is. Like listen to Cynthia Wilder say, "I don't give a shit about anybody. I don't give a fuck about anybody. I don't care about anybody." She knows that. She's very very aware of that for herself. But it doesn't matter. She has no interest in changing that at all. How do you fix that? How do you find an answer to that if you have someone who understands that their moral compass is broken but has no interest in doing anything differently? She's a mother and a kindergarten teacher. This woman is teaching kindergarten for for other people's children. That's scary to me. One thing that really bothers me is that neither Cynthia nor Richie Wilder have ever apologized to Angela's family. Whether whether they would actually mean it sincerely or not, I, I don't know that that necessarily matters, but neither one of them have. They they both still say she deserved to die. And that's probably the most disturbing thing to me in writing this book is, is that I would say that that's the closure that I do not have, that the two people who are responsible for this still have absolutely no regret or remorse for it. 
The book is titled Wilder Intentions. The author is C.J. Wynn. You can find the book on Amazon in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. See the link in the podcast show notes. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. Please consider supporting this podcast by becoming a member of any Forum Communications news website. There are over 25 of them, and when you become a member, you'll get online access to all of them. Not to mention, bonus content from me at Dakota Spotlight Podcast. The music you're listening to was provided courtesy of Dr. Jamart Bismarck, North Dakota. Please check them out at bandcamp.com at drjmart.bandcamp.com. That's drjmart.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.